0: Good and welcome to the Bohemian Podcast with Pete Coleman and Travis Dole. Good evening from Prague and welcome to the Bohemian Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Coleman. And I'm Travis Dow from the History of Alchemy Podcast. There are moments in history that we can look back and say this revolution, this convention, this battle or assassination was the spark that ignited a benchmark event. The Battle of White Mountain, or known as the Battle of Bila Hora, was one such event. Tonight we break down the conditions that led to the battle the engagement itself, and the ramifications that follow. We will also take you to the 2014 reenactment on the plains of Bilhor here in Prague for a first-hand account. Travis, let's set the table to explain to our audience the factors that led to this specific battle that helped spark the Thirty Years' War across Europa.
1: Yeah, so to, to first kind of uh, paint a picture of the circumstances where the Thirty Years' War kind of erupted, in the early 17th century, most of the Bohemian lands were... Protestant, but under Roman Catholic control. So a lot of the Czech nobility were Protestant, but the Austrian nobility were Catholic. And they were um, calling the shots. And yep, yeah. so the, the emperor was Catholic, uh, you know, um, definitely the people in charge were, were Catholic, but most of the population was Protestant. In 1617, Emperor Ferdinand, a devout Roman Catholic and champion of the Counter-Reformation, was named Holy Roman Emperor and King of Bohemia. This led to deep consternation among many Bohemian Protestants who feared not only the loss of their religious freedom, but also of their traditional kind of semi-autonomy.
0: So you can see right now, the, the, the vision you were talking about, Travis, the one the rulers of the land had a very strong connection to Roman Catholic Church and, and the whole Absolutely. Roman Empire, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. But the people that were taking the orders or, t- or living in the, in the area had more of a Protestant sort of background at this point. Right? Yeah, so you can was, see the things were going to get really was, ugly.
1: Yeah, several famous um, Protestants living in Prague, for instance. Like we talked about Kepler yeah. on one of the shows. And he he left Graz for Prague specifically because he couldn't hold a high enough position. He couldn't be like a court mathematician or whatever in Graz. And uh, so he was, he was afraid of persecution, so he came here. The first public autopsy was done in Prague because um, uh, the, the Catholics banned autopsies in general, but Protestants can do it. So, you know, under Rudolf II, they allowed it, but Ferdinand then then again
0: banned it in the Counter-Reformation. Well, Ferdinand would, would become, of course, Emperor Ferdinand II following Matthias's death in 1619. Uh, the Protestantism uh, really was a, an idea that Ferdinand thought would be a danger to the entire empire and wanted to impose this absolute rule on Bohemia as an example uh, to, to be led, uh, while forcefully encouraging conversion to the Roman Catholic faith. Uh, He also hoped to reclaim churches and properties that were seized by Protestants at the start of this Reformation that happened decades earlier and to do away with the electorate, you know, the body of princes that chose the the Holy Roman Empire, because they would have so much control over what was being said or who would be sitting in power as emperor as the decades would roll on. So he wanted to solidify this and keep the Holy Roman Empire in control of this area. So, of course, Travis, the defenestration of Prague also added to a lot of the the consternation that held between the Roman Catholics and the Protestants. Real quickly, Trav, we talked about this in many episodes about the defenestration of Prague. This happened in two, two separate um, incidences here during this time. Yeah, de- defenestration means murder by throwing somebody out
1: of a window. I'm sure we've, that's come up before on this show. And the first one was during the Hussite War, or basically what sparked the Hussite Wars. And the second one was in the castle, they threw some kind of secretaries or some kind of uh, councilman from uh, of the emperor they threw them out of the window and f- they fell pretty high it was something like 30 meters it's a really high wall you can still see it on the castle today uh, but fortunately there was a huge pile of horse or cow dung at the bottom of the window yep so they kind of they survived and they crossed the river they ran and, and told the the powers that be and that basically started the the Bohemian revolt so in November 1619, Elector Palatine Frederick V, who, like many of the rebels, was a Calvinist, was chosen of King of Bohemia by the Bohemian
0: electorate. All right, so already you have an outsider that's come in here to run things during a very heated time. And if you look at the artwork at this time, specifically on the defenestration, Travis, you'll see that you'll know who painted the pictures on, mm-hmm. on, on the issue of these three men, I believe it was three men that were thrown mm-hmm. from the windows. If it was a Catholic, you had angels actually lifting them up from certain death being thrown out the window of Prague Castle, yeah. right? If it's
1: Protestants, it's, Protestants, they got it's large, cow dung. Yes, yeah, cow dung, it's... and
0: they, they rolled on out of here you know, sheepishly heading towards the river to run away from, from mm-hmm. real justice. Okay, yep. so yeah, it's kind of interesting to see that. Now, Travis, I had a chance to, to go down with my son to um, the reenactment in, in late September of 2014 this year. Uh, to see the, the battle reenactment that they do every year of Bilahora on the plains of Bilahora near the park. It was uh, a very wet, wet day, which kind of was very s- symbolic of what it was like in 1620 mm-hmm. when the battle actually happened. Before we get to the, the battle itself, I'll probably give you an idea about what that experience was at the reenactment as things were kind of warming up. So let's go to that sound if we can right now uh, where I got a chance to kind of talk about the prep time of the reenactment as as the two sides, the Catholics and the Protestants, were warming up to have this engagement in the middle of the, of the battlefield. Yeah. We're here at the uh, battle reenactment. We're kind of, Before the battle gets going here at Vila we're actually watching um, uh, a little bit of fencing as we have actors uh, dressed up here in, in musketeer type outfits from the uh, the uh, uh, 17th century. These guys are... Uh, got a crowd around them. We just finished a torrential downpour, so there's mud everywhere, and so it adds a little bit of extra Uh, drama to the uh, the fencing. You can hear it in the background. So this is kind of the preliminary before we actually have several hundred reenactors hit the field, this very, very muddy field here on the uh, plains of Vila Hora today. Okay, Travis, uh, you know, it's... It started to get a little loud. (laughs) Uh, We had great seats. Uh, We were actually sinking into the mud a little bit in our seats. Um, It wasn't as cold as it would be in 1620, of course. It was later in the year. They have this in the summer to kind of make it a little bit more touristy touristy to get people out there to see this. Uh, But uh, it was wet and a little miserable. So you kind of got that idea of what it was like to kind of fire flintlock or handheld cannons in the wet rain. There's a lot of misfiring as you can mm-hmm. imagine, yeah, yeah, during sure. this. But still, the hand-to-hand combat was pretty interesting to see. We'll go, during the course of this podcast tonight, we'll go back and get more uh, an idea about what the reenactment was like. But, Travis, going to the battle itself in 1620, um, there's some confusion. If you see some of the paintings of this battle, it looks mammoth. It looks like tens of thousands of people engaged in this. But it really wasn't that big of a battle in that sense, and it didn't certainly last that long. No, it
1: was only a few hours. And the official numbers, or what historians now think, is that the Protestants had roughly 30,000 people, while Ferdinand and the Catholics had some 25,000. I've actually read that that's really hard to pin down because um, there's a a book called Prague in Black and Gold. Great book, by the way. Yeah, and in that book he said, well, Hora was so close to Prague and the weather was so bad, and at this point many of the men just kind of, weren't really in the mood and they just went to some of the bars nearby and started getting drunk. <laughs> and they actually a lot of the men just missed the battle. Supposedly there was a significant percentage of defectors. So I don't know if this 30,000 is taking that into account or not, but you know, it's, it's just hard to kind
0: of pin down basically. Well, you know, looking at the people that were leading this, uh, you know, King Frederick and his military commander, Prince Christian of Anhalt had organized the Protestant army that you said of, which reached about 30,000 men. Ferdinand countered with a, for a force of twenty-five thousand that uh, were seasoned soldiers. All right, these guys were, were knew exactly what to do on the field. They weren't just townspeople with pitchforks, mm-hmm. right? And they were under the capable leadership of Field Marshal Tilly, a Roman Catholic Spanish Flemish nobleman. Tilly's army uh, had a little bit more of an advantage because not only did they have the experience, they probably had better weaponry. Tilly's
1: force, and also the future general. Wallenstein, was made up of two distinct groups. So you have the Imperial troops commanded by Charles Bonaventure de Longueval, Count of Bucroix, and then you also have soldiers from the German Catholic League, League, and they were directly under the, con- under the command of Tilly. And all of these armies also had a, a pretty large numbers of mercenaries. And this is also really important because mercenaries play a huge role in 30 years war, and that is the last war in which
0: mercenaries play a role in. And, and, that, and that's reflected, though, also, Travis, in the reenactment, because you had actually reenactors from all around Europe, from Russia, Poland, yeah, exactly. you know, uh, from, from France, uh, from Germany coming in, from Italy coming in, and they all had different uniforms, different flag, standard bearers. The field of battle must have been very, very confusing in a lot of sense, because when you get close to hand-hand sure. hand combat, yeah. who are you fighting? And, you know, how are you getting the, the you know, the, the orders from the generals because everyone spoke a different language. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this was, it was, was actually mirrored in the reenactment uh, that we'll talk about a little later on in the podcast. Uh, but definitely it's something that happened in real life in 1620. And not only that, but the Catholic League had an official observer,
1: who, who you might know as the future sort of father of modern philosophy... René Descartes. One more thing about Wallenstein, so he ended up being a general later in the Thirty Years War and after the Thirty Years War he actually he had more troops than the Emperor which the Emperor thought was kind of dangerous. Johannes Kepler actually read Wallenstein's horoscope at one point and predicted the day of his death and the way he would die. Oh, interesting. Okay, yeah, did,
0: I, did I tell you this before? Yeah, we, we've, I think we, talked, we touched upon that. So,
1: I, If I took you up to the castle, you can see Wallenstein's palace and it's the one with the weird drippy wall at one end but it's all French gardens, the rest. So Kepler might have obviously he might have seen which way the political winds are blowing but Wallenstein ended up being killed by an assassin hired by the emperor because he was just too powerful, too rich and powerful. I mean, he had more money and troops than the emperor that just can't fly. But Rene Descartes was also there. And after conquering most of Western Bohemia, the imperial army, they sort of made their way to Prague, which was pretty firmly in the rebel hands because, again, most of the population were, were Protestants. And the Bohemians attempted to block them by setting up a defensive position, which then the imperial army just marched around. Basically, by force marching his men, Christian of Anhalt managed to get ahead of the imperial army just before Prague. So he had the advantageous sort of high ground, which was actually the the White Mountain, which is really—it's not quite a mountain. If you look at it, it's It's kind of a hill. hill. Yeah. Yeah, and it's really sort of a low plateau. But they, they didn't have a lot of time to set up kind of defensive work. So, you know, and again, we mentioned that the time of year and just, you know, the overall kind of, you know, no one was really enthusiastic about this. You had the mercenaries to it. You know, they did, it was a sort of winter. basically. Minimum, yeah, yeah, minimum yeah, it, kind of effort. You know, they're just right. phoning it in. <laughs> and by this time, Christian of Anhalt's army had been reduced to about 15,000 men and didn't really have a whole lot of hope. of of victory. The mercenaries hadn't been paid in months on both sides. So it's just, you know, winter approaching, cold, wet. Um, Yeah, it's just not a perfect sort of conditions for a battlefield.
0: And and before we go back out to uh, some more sound that we had at at the, the reenactment, uh, again, we'll, we'll put it out there that, uh, yes, it was warmer than it would be in, in during the time it, and in November 8th of, of 1620 when this happened. Uh, in September of 2014, it was rainy. It had rained. To add a little little bit to this, there was a, uh, a Czech heavy metal concert several days before this. Uh, I think it was Kabat. Have you ever listened to Kabat? Uh-uh. Uh, it's... Yeah. it's, it's, it's um, it's interesting, uh, heavy metal on a, from a Czech version. Uh, but the place was wrecked, all right? So already it was – it looked like it was – It was already a battlefield. It already was a battlefield. So by the time we get out there for that Saturday, um, it had seen better days. Uh, if you do go to the area of Bielahora, it, it's, it's a pretty developed area at this point. There's schools there. There's a shopping, little shopping center and a, and a grocery store. If you go across the, tra- the tram tracks, you will see that there's a, a, a monument to Bielahora on a rock. Um, there's actually a, a fenced-off Bila Hora Park, right, Travis? And, and it's got a, mm-hmm. uh, I think what they call the Star Hunting Lodge, a star fort, that's there in the middle of, the, of this forest and uh, in in this park. But that's not really where the battle was. Uh, the battle was kind of in a, in a general vicinity of this area now that is kind of uh, in, populated by several houses. But uh, the, the low-lying area where they have this reenactment uh, is a pretty good idea about where some of the fighting was. And uh, as we get to the reenactment, you kind of you hear that there were some uh, explosions, of course, by the heavy cannon. There was some of that. Mm-hmm. But what was interesting to me as I was talking to some of the reenactors, and this relates, Travis, to your show that we do on alchemy, was that they knew that the, the little cannons that they had... Um, which were you know, uh, pre- predecessors to shotguns, basically, yeah. Yeah. Um, they were having misfire because of the wet conditions. So alchemists kind of knew that if this were to happen in a wet, wet area, that they had to make a different type of gunpowder mm-hmm. with chemicals. So the alchemists would actually make this different type of uh, concoction to, to light in wet conditions. Okay. And yeah. some of that did work. Interesting. So yeah. alchemy and usage here, right? So, so if we can, not let's go, let's go to the uh, battlefield one more time to kind of get an idea about how the Catholics and the Protestants are doing at this point of the battle. As the battle rages on here, being horror, you hear the quick step of the, uh, the cadence of the drums and the chaos and the fog of battle is, is pretty intense. There's a lot of smoke in the battlefield here. The reenactors are actually uh, going pretty hard hand-to-hand combat and uh, they're bringing in the cannons and muskets right now. There was a retreat of the Catholic League, and now the Protestants are, are doing a counterattack uh, to pretty much no avail. Okay, as again as you can hear, uh, there were some loud explosions. Uh, really, this is one of the better reenactments that you can actually see in the in Prague or even in Czech Republic. I highly recommended. A lot of trained reenactors that were there. A really, kind of an amazing experience if you can see that uh, in late September every year. Highly recommended. But going back to the battle, Travis. As we said, this actual battle ha- happened at the beginning of winter, in November 8th of 1620. A small imperial force was sent to probe the Protestant flank at this course of the battle. To so their surprise, the Bohemians retreated at their advance, maybe like a false sort of flank attack or a, a false retreat, possibly. Uh, Tilly quickly sent for reinforcements, and the Bohemian flank began to crumble. You mentioned this before, Travis. Uh, these guys that were representing the Protestants weren't seasoned fighters. Yeah. They probably didn't want to lose uh, their lives over such a thing and thought the better part of valor is to, mm-hmm. to get off the field of battle, right? So Anhart tried to uh, retrieve the situation by sending forward an infantry and cavalry led by his son Christian II. The cavalry charged into the imperial infantry, causing significant casualties, as you can imagine. Until Till encountered with his own cavalry, forcing the Bohemian horsemen to retire from, from the field of battle. Bohemian infantry, uh, who were known to be approaching the imperial army, saw the cavalry retreating, at which they fired one volley at extreme range before retreating themselves. A small yeah. group of, of imperial cavalry began circling the Protestant forces. You saw this during the reenactment. Oh, okay. They actually yeah, did yeah, that yeah, pretty they circled well. Around, yeah. circled around them, and you can imagine the fear that was going on in the situation. Um, driving them from the field of battle. With the Bohemian army already demoralized, company after company began retreating, uh, most without having actually entered the battle itself at all. So um, the field of battle was pretty much won at this point. Tilly and his imperial cavalrymen advanced with 2,000 Bavarian hussars, uh, steadily pushing the Protestant forces back to the Star Palace that we mentioned before mm-hmm. uh, just a few minutes ago. The Battle of White Mountain was was more a full-fledged battle, Travis. Uh, we kind of uh, put it up on a very high pedestal, mainly because this was the last chance for a self-autonomous bohemian-led area. And instead, from this yeah. point on, it they became ruled by outside forces. Well, it was, yeah, I mean, it's also
1: one of the most, even to today, and even by today's standards, it was one of the most brutal battles ever in Czech history from the Czech point of view. So the battle, we're talking like less than an hour. Yeah, and very some quick. And so 4,000... Protestants were killed or captured. I mean thousands dead, but you know 4,000 casualties, and the imperial losses were only about 700. So this just kind of a massacre, and that's the way it's pro- portrayed today even in Czech history. It's just this massacre of, of Czechs by Austrians, and it's funny because most people don't know this, but it looms very large in the Czech mind. And this was one story I talked about, and I had a group of some 30 Austrian kids, and I was like, oh, you guys know the Battle of, of a White Mountain? you know, the Schlacht von Weissenberg, and they're like, oh yeah. Oh yeah, yeah that's hell right. Hell yeah, we do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, Austrians and Czechs, it's still remembered, and here, here's what one of the reenactors had to say about it, actually.
0: Uh, in in the battle, actually, one of the generals uh, ran off, they, they, he just, like, no, I don't want to be here, so he, he went off, and it wasn't just like Czechs against Germans, it was uh, all kind of countries involved here, because back then, it wasn't like... Only Czech army, or eh, it was mixed. There was uh, some hired guys there. It was mixture of char- uh, cultures battling here. because was, you know, it was uh, from Catholics against Protestants. Protestants, so. Yeah. Eh, it's not just about one nation against other. It was battle of religions. If you think about it like that. Uh, it was great to have actually one of the reenactors come by and talk to us about that for a few minutes. Uh, you know, he uh, gave us a, so, some more insight into what the battle was like and basically how these reenactors were trained to kind of really get this as close as possible as they could uh, to what happened in, in uh, at the Battle of Bila some, some several hundred years ago. It's very interesting how serious these guys are. You know, every once in a while I take my camera out to these reenactments and I zoom in really close for some great shots and you have one or two guys smiling, you know, because they're having a good time. They've probably been drinking since you know seven in the morning. But these guys actually were very, very serious. They really were in character. And when they fell down on the field of battle, as if they were killed, they laid in the mud, mm-hmm. <laughs> face down, even, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, waiting for the for the the all clear to sound before they all got up from the dead. Yeah. And and that they they do a parade of of regiments to conclude man, some of those pictures you have it looks like zombies getting up yeah you, it,
1: it's spooky you, man. you put you put those up on Bohemian?
0: yeah actually i have a couple that i'll be putting up pretty man, soon because uh, way, yeah. uh you know we went to a couple reenactments this year you and i mm-hmm. did uh but this one uh was really something that next year you got to go they looked battle-worn yeah. i mean it, yeah it's they, they earned really their something. money that day i think so so travis the aftermath of this we talked about this on several podcasts uh through the past two years uh, on the show it was horrific And we Mm -hmm. talked about the executions that led to this. uh, Some many months later, of the noblemen that were accused of of either funding this or or putting this this battle into into play. It's almost hard to understate. So, again, it's Dr. Reynolds. So
1: so again, it's this. First of all, you have this huge massacre, okay, and then they, they had the 27 leaders of this revolt. They kind of singled out. And first of all, tortured them in the underground, but right under where the famous astrological clock is in, in Old Town, Town Square. square. Right. So underground, that used to be the ground level, but now it's underground, and those were torture chambers. And they tortured them for some nine months as punishment, before hauling them out, twenty-seven noblemen, and closing off all the um, the city walls, and then and then surrounding the city square with Austrian soldiers, and then you know they had the scaffolds built up and everything. So the leader Janysinski or as he was known kind of by a Latinized name, uh, being the leader and the man of action, they chopped off his arms, and then they cut out his tongue because he was the speaker for the group. And right. they and then after they beheaded him, they nailed his tongue to his head, yep. and then they um, cut off the arms of, of the uh, the other you know kind of generals that helped him out, and they executed another uh, ten or so by beheading. And then um, another, the rest of them by hanging, just in the same scaffolds, but just by hanging instead. And the executioner, the whole famous story about him too, Jan Middelarge. His whole life story is known. He's a famous Protestant executioner. There's actually friends with Jan Yesenius and and had to be the guy that beheaded him in the end. Like there's this, there's you know, all kinds of stories about this. Oh yeah, and then the last person of the group, he kind of pleaded for his life, saying, "Hey, I was just a." you know, a a secretary basically. I was just kind of the note-taker for the group. I didn't really do anything. I wasn't a leader. And the Emperor said, okay, fair enough, and um, I'll spare your life. But because your tongue was wagging so much, begging for your life, he nailed him by his tongue to the scaffolds and just left him there. And, oh, oh, wait, 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 I'm not done yet. <laughs> Great. So then they, they took the 10 or 12 heads, whatever it was, put them in metal cages yep. and hung them off of the tower from Charles Bridge for another dozen years, you know, just letting the skulls sit there as a warning, like, do not do this again. And then because you had, the, because there were a nobility, you had um, people from... Uh, representatives from England, from Spain, from Sweden, all over the place watching this. You know, any basically ambassadors, you know, what we think of them today. And they were watching this and they wrote home. So we even have English sources describing these executions. So they wrote home and and well the thing is you can't just do that to nobility. You don't just, you know, behead nobility as if they're as if they're common criminals and torture them for 9 months. So this is what caused the 30 Years War. And besides that, so first of all, Czech Republic was under Austria for 300 years not until the end of World War 1 in 1918 did they become independent again so from 1621 to 1918 they were part of Austria Hungary and then the 30 years war itself so this the, the beheading of these noblemen is what sparked it and the you know the protestant countries throughout Europe just was up in arms that you you can't treat nobility like this let alone protestant nobility just because you're catholic that's not an excuse so all Protestant countries waged war and then of course you know the Catholic League came to Bohemia's uh, rescue, or Austria's rescue, really. This actually decimated the population of Europe, and here's why this was the last mercenary war. Because there was actually more casualties in areas of Central Germany and Bohemia. In parts of Central Germany and Silesia and Northern Bohemia, it was up to 70% of the population Amazing. was gone. Yeah. Central Germany was 50%, and other areas as high as 30 in Germany. That's worse than World War I or World War II combined. So the Thirty Years' War was just detrimental. And the, absolutely. And the reason was was mercenaries. They had no loyalty. They didn't care. You know, this is before nations, and they weren't fighting for a nation. They were just fighting for gold. So they would come into a village, rape, kill, and eat anything that was rapable, killable, and edible, and just left the village empty. Women, children, massacred, just you name it, gone. So some villages were actually wiped out to 100%, you know? Right. And after, when the Thirty Years' War was said and done, first of all, they said, okay, we can't, you guys, we can't have holy wars anymore. And it was the last big holy war in Europe. You know, there was, uh, you know, Ireland's a different story and that kind of thing, but the last European-wide holy war. And they also said, they also sat down and said, okay, and mercenaries are probably a bad idea. Right. And that's when you start to see um you know like the french standing armies and you know conscription and you know national uh, professional armies you to start, a much you start greater that extent in, in the 19th century yep. right yeah I mean, so but that i mean it has its beginning in the you know later half of the 17th century because there just you know mercenaries were no longer an option it was just too horrific just like after World War I, they said we can't use chemical weapons anymore. Right. So at that time, it was kind of like a Geneva Convention. Okay, you guys, no more mercenaries, no more holy wars. Let's just agree on this. And you know, they drew a line in the sand saying north of this line is mostly Protestant and south of this line is mostly Catholic. Germany was split in two. You know? So uh, not for the last time, by the way. But Right. Unfortunately. The consequences of... Of that first defenestration had this chain reaction that killed ten percent of Europe. I just find that incredible, you know. Chuck three guys out of a window and you and, know and end up with ten percent of Europe. I, I
0: think the situation was was just ripe for some problems to, like that to kind of spark it. Oh yeah, and, it was a tinder. And, I mean, absolutely, it was a tinderbox. Yeah, yeah. And and you know, a lot of things were to happen. One thing we we didn't really mention a whole lot were the Swedes that came down. Uh, that that uh, tried to cross Charles Bridge during this th- this time and were stopped by the townspeople. The towns Devil's people. Bible is now in the, Stockholm the, as a direct the, result. The, right to this day, Br- the city of Bruneau was was surrounded and laid siege to uh, mm-hmm. during during this time. Sure. Uh, they survived it somehow, and that's a whole other story we can talk about another time. Mm-hmm. Um, we also talk about the Winter King and Winter Queen. <laughs> you know that, right. that left during the middle of all this battle, uh, that would be King Frederick and his wife Elizabeth. They got the heck out of Dodge, you know, yeah. in the middle of the night during this during during this time of winter. That's why they're called the Winter King and Queen. Sure, yeah, um, and so. All this stuff happened, and, and you're right. This was a benchmark in, for the Czech people because they were now going to be ruled by outside forces for the, for the next 300-plus years. Mm-hmm. So uh, the Battle of Bilahora, the Battle of White Mountain, and the 30-year war was devastating for the Czech people in a lot of ways. And like you said, uh, a holy uh, war that should that wasn't to be repeated on on European soil, soil, for the most part, because of its its horrible uh, repercussions. Mm-hmm. All right, we hope you uh, learned a little something tonight on the on this Bohemian podcast, especially about the uh, 30, Thirty Years War. Take a look at our website at Bohemian.com for all things Czech from the viewpoint of two American expats. If you get a chance, go to iTunes to uh, rate us because uh, that's uh, we we get a lot of information from that. Uh, from our listenership uh, as well. Subscribe to this on iTunes and, and hopefully we can uh, keep bringing you more great shows as we go forward. So for Travis Dow, I'm Pete Coleman. Have a good night. Yep, thanks. You have been listening to the Bohemican Podcast with Pete Coleman and Travis Dow. Visit bohemican.com for more information on this episode, other episodes, and much more information about history, traditions, and culture in the Czech Republic. Find us on iTunes, subscribe, and review, and don't forget to rate us. We would love to hear from you. Send comments, ideas and corrections on our comments page on bohemican.com or get in touch via Facebook or Twitter. Tune in to our sister podcast, History of Alchemy, which is also on iTunes or on historyofalchemy.com. Until next time on the Bohemian podcast, thank you for listening.